This week on Selected Shorts, what does it take to prove your love? The perfect gift? A bit of yourself you can't give? Or losing yourself altogether? Authors including Edgar Carrot and Haruki Murakami explore this theme in unexpected ways. Join me, Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. You would think it would be good enough to have someone say they love you, and you don't even have to have seen the film Love Actually to know that there are infinite permutations. But human beings are demanding, and one of the things we seem to demand is proof of love. That's not nearly as easy as proof of age or proof of vaccination status, so we resort to tokens, trials, and tests. In the three stories on this show, we hear about three different tests of love. In one, a husband looks for the ultimate gift for a demanding wife. In another, old flames extinguish. And in the third, a challenging marriage leads to complications and questions. We've featured many of Edgar Carrot's funny and tender stories over the years, from collections such as Suddenly a Knock on the Door and Fly Already. So we knew we wanted him to contribute to our anthology, Small Odysseys. And he didn't disappoint. Our title may suggest small, but a husband in search of the perfect 50th anniversary present for his hard-to-please wife thinks big. Our reader is Liev Schreiber, best known for the television series Ray Donovan. Film credits include Spotlight and The French Dispatch. He previously read Carrot's Fly Already for us, and now here he is to read almost everything. Almost everything. For her 49th birthday, Schleifer bought her 49 gifts. They each came from a different country. Perfume from France, sake from Japan, a hair clip from the Ivory Coast. He wrapped each present separately in the colors of the respective country's flag. On the morning of her birthday, he got up early, arranged everything on the coffee table, and between the curtain rod and the chandelier, he hung a silk banner on which he'd embroidered her name in 49 gold hearts. When Aviva woke up and walked into the living room, her eyes welled with tears of joy. And within seconds, he was weeping too, with happiness and relief. Schleifer's surprise birthday production became the talk of the town. Several people complimented him for being so creative and industrious. Even the busty cashier at the grocery store, who never said anything more personal than, it's buy one, get one free, smiled and asked where she could get herself a husband like him. Schleifer gave her a nonchalant wink and remarked self-assuredly, if you're going to celebrate, you might as well go all out. But not everyone was supportive. Dude, you dug us into a hole, Hyman grumbled. You raised the bar so high, there's no way I can get away with buying Lizzie a bunch of flowers and a card from the gas station anymore. And when Schleifer stopped by the nursery for some fertilizer, Albert snorted, bro. If this is what you do for her 49th birthday, I can't begin to think what the production you'll put on for her 50th. 
After a minute, he put his calloused hand on Schleifer's shoulder and asked, Are you okay? You look pale. Like a prisoner who digs a tunnel from his cell and discovers it ends up in the prison yard. Like a warrior returning triumphantly from the battlefield only to be sent back to the front. Like a gazelle that narrowly escapes a forest fire straight into a pride of hungry lions. That's exactly how Schleifer felt when he got home from the nursery. Aviva's birthday was a grueling challenge that he'd managed to complete, a character test he'd passed while knowing that even the slightest deviation from the fantasy she'd concocted would lead to sorrow and bitter disappointment. Yet through all the months during which he'd clambered up that steep and slippery mountain, he hadn't given so much as a moment's thought to the fact that after he conquered the summit, awaiting him beyond it only one year away, there would be another one, far higher and more precipitous. Then leave her, said Jana in her indifferent tone, as if she were scheduling him for a dentist appointment. That, by the way, was how they'd met. Jana was the receptionist for Dr. Miklos, his and Aviva's dentist. The first time he met her at the clinic, she told him a really dirty joke. And when she laughed loudly, as if it were the first time she'd heard it, she revealed two rows of glistening white teeth. Clean teeth and a filthy mouth. Was there any sexier combo? I asked you to help me think of a gift, Schleifer grumbled and pulled on his pants. Not give me couples counseling. Okay, Jana said, and inserted a long fingernail between her teeth to pull out a pubic hair. Then buy her some expensive jewelry or a luxury hotel getaway. She'll love it. Aviva doesn't like jewelry, Schleifer said as he finished tying his shoelaces. And on the way out, he added, and when I suggest a vacation, she always says going abroad is for people who aren't happy at home. Yeah, Jana called after him. And are you? That night, after Aviva fell asleep, Schleifer sat with his laptop for almost five hours, searching for something special. Well, in the past, he'd made do with stale search terms like gift, surprise, or simply expensive. He was now savvy enough to try concrete things like endangered animals. A clouded leopard could have made her happy, but since it was feline, she might be allergic. Illegal cosmetic treatments. He found a hospital in Albania that offered innovative surgery to lengthen your legs by two inches. But whenever Aviva had gone under anesthesia, she'd suffered terrible nausea. Or blissful orgasm. A Latin robot lover sounded interesting, but if he knew Aviva, she'd view that as an attempt to shirk his duties. And besides, with all due respect to Latins, they excelled in many areas, but robotics was not one of them. Finally, after all other efforts had failed, he typed in asteroid and discovered that for 30 or 40,000 shekels, you could get one named after you. Schleifer copied down the phone number with a U.S. area code and decided to look into the matter. At first, he imagined Aviva perfectly in character, saying, This is what you got me, a piece of rock. But he also knew it was important to her that the gift be original and imaginative. 
And there was no denying that having an asteroid named for you was not the kind of gift you got every day. It was 4 a.m. when Schleifer dialed the number. He went out to the balcony so as not to wake Aviva and was surprised when a deep, gravelly voice answered in a heavy southern accent. The man on the other end of the line introduced himself as Galileo. And when Schleifer asked if that was his real name, the guy snickered and said, no, genius, it's not my real name. Galileo explained to Schleifer that the whole field of naming astronomical objects was still wide open, and that outer space was the 21st century's Wild West. Officially, it turned out astronomical bodies were supposed to be named for their discoverers, and the authorities were strongly opposed to commercializing things. But gravelly Galileo knew how to get around that. By your wife's 50th birthday, he promised Schleifer, I guarantee I'll find a new asteroid and give it her weird name. It's uh, not a weird name, Schleifer said defensively. Aviva is a very acceptable name in Israel, uh, common even. It comes from the Hebrew word for Aviv, which means, honestly, Galileo cut him off, I don't give a shit. Just get the 10th hour ready, yeah? Because from the minute I locate the asteroid, everything's got to run like clockwork so I can register it fast. I mean, neither of us would be thrilled if, while I'm waiting for you to come up with the 10K, some fucking Chinaman cuts in and names the asteroid after his granny. The next 11 months were calm. They were not, however, uneventful. Aviva's parents both died of COVID-19. And Schleifer's business suffered a blow when his partner, Francois, skipped the country, leaving a pile of debt behind. Jana left him, too, and started going out with a fitness coach who'd trained half the commandos in the Army's elite squads and could have sex for eight hours straight without stopping for a second. Not even for a drink of water. Or so Jana claimed. But when it came to the preparations for Aviva's 50th birthday, Schleifer felt supremely calm. It was as if that brief, peculiar phone call in the middle of the night with a man who lived on the other side of the world and called himself Galileo was more reliable than the bank account emptied out by the conniving Francois before he disappeared. Thoughts such as, maybe he won't be able to find an asteroid in time, or he might just be a crackpot American who likes lying to people on the phone. Never even crossed Schleifer's normally skeptical mind. Perhaps it was because Galileo had sounded so confident. Or perhaps because Schleifer's facade of serenity was hiding such colossal terror that he was afraid to let it crack. His second talk with Galileo was also at 4 a.m., this time, it was Galileo who called. Aviva woke up when the phone rang, which Schleifer told her it was a Canadian lawyer who was trying to help him sort things out with Francois, and she went back to sleep. Schleifer stepped out onto the balcony, and Galileo informed him that he'd found the promised asteroid, and that Schleifer was lucky he wasn't charging by weight, because this one was almost as big as the moon. Galileo said he would text Schleifer his bank account info, and as soon as the wire transfer was confirmed, he would register the asteroid in Aviva's name. Schleifer thanked him and was about to hang up, but Galileo said there was one more little detail. Full disclosure, he called it. 
When you find an asteroid, it's not enough to know where it is now. Those, those fuckers are in motion, you know? I mean, uh, you, you have to calculate their course. And? Schleifer asked when Galileo's silence stretched out. Well, the thing is, Galileo went on, based on my calculations, this asteroid is on track to strike Earth. Isn't gonna have any bearing on our naming, see? Our transaction is unaffected, but still I felt I should share this information with you. Okay, so uh, when exactly is this supposed to happen? What do you say your wife's birthday is? April 30th, Schleifer replied. Great, great. Asteroids should only collide with us the next day. For a second there, I was afraid it'd work out exactly on her birthday, which would, you know, put a damper on the party. And uh, this collision, it uh, could be serious. Serious? Galileo snorted. <laughs> Ombre, based on the tragic fate befallen by our friends, the dinosaurs, I'd say that when an asteroid this big hits planet Earth, it's pretty fucking serious. On the evening of April 29th, when he stopped to fill up the car, Schleifer went into the empty convenience store and bought a frozen Swiss roll and a card. Aviva was still in her year of mourning over her parents, which absolved him from the need to organize a party or even make reservations at a restaurant. She'd loved her parents dearly, so had he. They were stand-up people from the pre-scum era, and they'd really loved each other. Aviva told him once that they'd never celebrated birthdays when she was growing up, and that's why she'd always felt deprived. Her dad used to say, what would you prefer? One day with parties and lots of attention or for us to love you year round? Every time her dad said that, little Aviva had felt stupid and guilty. But when she grew up, her therapist explained that the need to celebrate birthdays was universal and ingrained, like needing sleep or food and that she shouldn't feel bad about never forgiving her parents for it. The birthday card Schleifer bought had a picture of a shooting star, and underneath it said in gold letters, Make a wish. He added in his lopsided handwriting, For the woman who has almost everything. Aviva found the gilded card and the Swiss roll with a lit candle on the kitchen table on the morning of her birthday. And right on cue, Exactly as she and Schleifer were biting into the cake, a newsflash on the radio reported that the asteroid called Aviva would reach Earth in less than 24 hours. <laughs> Schleifer sipped his coffee and waited patiently. The first two times they said the name of the asteroid, Aviva didn't seem to make the connection. But when the newscaster relayed predictions of tens of millions of casualties from Aviva and then outlined various catastrophic scenarios, she looked at the shooting star on the birthday card again, and a faint smile came to her lips. You nutcase, she said in a shaky voice, and put her warm hand on the hairy back of his neck. You really shouldn't have. Instead of answering, Schleifer shut his eyes and submitted like a cat to the touch of her hand.
Leah Schreiber performed almost everything by Edgar Carrot. I'm Meg Wallitzer. I think that one was definitely in the don't-try-this-at-home category. And who knows whether your next grand gift gesture will end life as we know it. Take my advice and settle for the charm bracelet instead. Or even a few leaves pressed into a book. Or, if you're short on time, a Hallmark card from the drugstore. Gestures don't have to be big. Just remind yourself it's the thought that counts. Say it often enough, and you may even start to believe it. In our next story about proving love, the author Jacob Guajardo packs a lot of ambivalence into a short encounter at a taco joint. The main characters in Conquistadors on Fairchild, irony much, are former lovers who've just hooked up again. But neither is sure what that means, and other relationships, real and potential, are waiting in the wings. The story is read by Michael Hartney, an alum of New York's famed improv comedy club, Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. His television credits include 30 Rock, and he was part of the original Broadway cast of School of Rock, the musical. Conquistadors on Fairchild. Collins sat across from me at the Mexican restaurant on Fairchild Street called Conquistadors. There was an empty basket on the table between us. I pressed licked wet fingers to the bottom of the basket and swiped up the tortilla chip crumbs. Collins stared at a black bench in a patch of dead grass across the street. He looked lovely beside a window. A few weeks ago, we'd started hooking up again. I kept thinking we were going to get back together, but he had a boyfriend. I asked if he thought he was a good person. Yes, he said. I'm a good person, and so are you. (laughs) What makes us good people? I asked. He flicked the plastic menu as if it had produced an answer. If I ordered something you knew I wasn't going to like, would you tell me? Yes. He smiled as if to say, well, there you go. (laughs) Would good people do what we're doing? That's what I wanted to know. At first, seeing him in my house again, his legs kicked up on the arm of a chair. I liked the idea that we might get back together. Slowly I saw it would be like picking up an unfinished book and thinking you could find your place in it. It was fun for a while, sneaking around with him, but I didn't make him happy. If I could manage to, it was only for a little while. I must have looked sad. because he reached across the table and touched my hand inside the empty basket. I pulled it back and licked my fingers. The waitress appeared suddenly at the table with a pitcher of water and started to fill our empty glasses. I was grateful for the interruption. She was young, a winged eyeliner painted on like two devilish horns. How are we doing? She asked. Need some more chips? I think we're okay. Colin said. He looked at his watch. Thank you for waiting, the waitress said. It sounded like she was thanking us for more than our patience. I noticed Colin looking at his watch again. Do you have to go? Sorry, it's been like a half hour since we ordered. Be patient, I said. 
He'd always been impatient. I used to like it. When we first started dating, he'd tap his fingers on my knee while I drove us back to my place. And when we were almost there, a gentle squeeze. When the food came, the waitress sat in the booth beside Colin. Hey, this is weird, but that guy over there thinks you're cute. In the kitchen, a lanky busboy in a white apron was washing a saucepan. Can I give him your number? Colin turned all the way around in the booth. The busboy cracked a smile, and so of course, Colin wrote his number on a napkin with the waitress's pen. Together they went to the kitchen. Colin gave him the napkin. The busboy slipped it inside his apron. I flicked the pen and it rolled off then under the table. What was that? I asked when Colin returned. What? That, I gestured to the kitchen, to the busboy who was watching us. Why'd you do that? Why not? Because you have a boyfriend. We're open, said Colin. What? You thought I was cheating on my boyfriend with you? Then without a thought, I leaned over and picked the pen off the floor as if willing things to go back the way they were moments ago. He lets you sleep with other guys? Yes. Isn't that greedy? I don't know. Was I being greedy when I let you fuck me? If I looked at Colin's ear, I could see the busboy over his shoulder in the kitchen cleaning his pots and pans. He made slow circles with his dish rag like he was polishing a stone. He glanced at the back of Colin's head and smiled. It was almost as if he was smiling at me. Listen, Colin said. He rubbed the back of his neck in a telling gesture. Freckles under his arm. I can tell you think this, he wagged his finger back and forth between us, is more than it is. No, I said, tapping the pen against the table. I don't. He took the pen and twirled it in his fingers. I'm just trying to be a good person. When the food was gone and the check was split, we walked across the street to sit on the black bench in the dead grass. We faced the windows of the restaurant. In a few minutes, the sun would go down and our reflections in the glass would fade as the street lights flickered on. Something's bothering me, I told him. What's up, he said. Promise you won't take this the wrong way. Promise. He stuck out his pinky finger. Why do you think the busboy picked you over me? He laughed. <laughs> what did I want him to say? When we broke up the first time, I thought that one of us would come out a better person. I thought it would be me. Forget it, I said. It doesn't matter. I put a hand on his knee and tapped my fingers. If I'd wanted us to be together again, that feeling was gone. Instead, I felt butterflies, the way you feel before a first date or 
moments before a kiss, or in the moment after when you hope another will follow. I squeezed his knee. Wherever we were going, I wanted to get there faster. That was Michael Hartney performing Conquistadors on Fairchild by Jacob Guajardo. The dance of sex and connections and who cares more about whom is on full, unnerving, and touching display here. I'm Meg Wallitzer. The story was a commission for Schwartz's anthology, Small Odysseys. We spoke to Hartney backstage at Symphony Space about his take on the story. It was very humbling just to be on a lineup with so many amazing people. And then, like, the icing on the cake was being sent this story that is so good and that really kind of spoke to me. So it was really exciting to be able to, like, bring myself to that. I think it's probably too simplistic to say, like, oh, I am gay and this story is about gay guys. (laughs) That is certainly where it started. But it's just about expectations and those changing in a way that really did speak to me. I'm used to doing comedy where there's a very immediate, A, there's an immediate like energy, you attack the stage, you get a first laugh pretty quickly. This felt very calm and (laughs) sort of serious, but it was cool. I don't think I've ever told a story out loud before in front of an audience and it was great. That was actor Michael Hartney. When we return, the Iceman cometh, Haruki Murakami style. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. We're listening to stories about the lengths people will go to in order to prove their love. Happily, you don't have to do much to prove your love of Selected Shorts. Head to SelectedShorts.org to have a meaningful encounter with past episodes. Find out about the Selected Shorts writing contest and check out the book from which two of the stories on this hour were taken, our anthology, Small Odysseys. It's common to find an element of fantasy clinging to stories by the phenomenal and prodigious author Haruki Murakami. His many celebrated works include the collection's first-person singular, Stories, and the novels Norwegian Wood and IQ84. We've read a lot of Murakami's fiction at shorts, and he never fails to both mystify and entrance. As always with Murakami, it's hard for me to say exactly why I love his work. It almost feels as if the more I try to describe it, the more my inadequate words are set into relief against his mesmerizing ones, which is exactly how it should be. Iceman, a favorite from our archive, seemed to fit right in with our theme. In love stories, ice is often used accusingly, but here it's literal. A shy woman falls in love with a man made of ice at a ski resort, where else? And they marry. Iceman is read by the incomparable Jane Curtin, 
whose entertainment career began in comedy on shows like Saturday Night Live and Third Rock from the Sun, but who has brought sweetness, tartness, the Philadelphia Inquirer once called her a refreshing drop of acid, and nuance to a wide range of stories over her years with us. Here she is with Haruki Murakami's Iceman. My husband's an ice man. The first time I met him was at a hotel at a ski resort. It's hard to imagine a more appropriate place to meet an ice man. He was in the lobby of the hotel, noisy and crowded with hordes of young people, seated in a corner as far as possible from the fireplace, quietly absorbed in a book. It was nearly noon but the clear, cold morning light seemed to shine on him alone. That's an ice man, one of my friends whispered. At the time, I had no idea what sort of a person an ice man was, and my friend couldn't help me out. All she knew was that he was the sort of person who went by the name of Iceman. They must call him that because he's made out of ice. She added, a serious look on her face, as serious as if the topic wasn't an ice man, but a ghost or someone with a contagious disease. The ice man looked young, though that was offset by the white strands like patches of leftover snow mixed in among his stiff, wiry head of hair. He was tall. His cheeks were sharply chiseled like frozen crags, his fingers covered with frost that looked like it would never, ever melt. Other than this, he looked perfectly normal. He wasn't handsome, exactly, though some would find him quite appealing. There was something about him that pierced right through you, especially his eyes, and that silent, transparent look that gleamed like an icicle on a winter's morning, the sole glint of life in an otherwise provisional body. I stood there for a while, gazing at the Iceman from across the lobby. He was absorbed in his book, never once moving or looking up, as if trying to convince himself that he was utterly alone. The next afternoon, he was in the same spot as before, reading his book. When I went to the dining room for lunch and when I came back with my friends from skiing in the evening, he was always there, seated in the same chair, the same look in his eyes as he scanned the pages of the same book as before. And the next day was exactly the same. Dawn to dusk found him seated alone, quietly reading for all the world like part of the frozen winter scene outside. On the afternoon of the fourth day, I made up an excuse and didn't join everyone on the slopes. Instead, I stayed behind in the hotel, wandering around the lobby. With everyone out skiing, the lobby was like an abandoned city. The air there was sticky and hot, filled with a strangely depressing odor, the smell of snow that had clung to the soles of people's boots and had slowly melted in front of the fireplace. I gazed out the windows, leafed through a newspaper. Finally, I worked up my courage, went over to the Iceman, and spoke to him. 
I'm pretty shy and hardly ever strike up a conversation with a stranger, but I couldn't help myself. I had to talk to him. This was my last night in the hotel, and if I let this chance pass, I probably would never have another. You're not skiing, I asked, trying to sound casual. The Iceman slowly raised his head, looking like he was carefully listening to the wind blowing far away. He gazed intently at me and then quietly shook his head. I don't ski, he said. I'm fine just reading and looking out at the snow. His words floated up in the air, a white comic book bubble of dialogue, every word visible before me. He gently wiped away some of the frost from his fingers. I had no idea what to say next. I blushed and stood there, rooted to the spot. The Iceman gazed into my eyes and gave me what looked like a faint smile. Or was it? Had he really smiled? Maybe I was just imagining it. Would you like to sit down, he said. I know you're curious about me, so let's talk for a while. You want to know what an Iceman is like, right? He chuckled. It's all right, he added. There's nothing to be afraid of. You're not going to catch a cold just talking to me. We sat on a sofa in a corner of the lobby, hesitantly talking as we watched the swirling snow outside. I ordered a cup of hot cocoa, but the Iceman didn't drink anything. He was just as shy as I was. On top of which, we had little in common to talk about. We talked about the weather at first, then the hotel. Did you come here alone, I asked him. I did, he responded. Do you like skiing, he asked. Not particularly, I replied. Some of my girlfriends dragged me here. I can barely ski. I was dying to find out more about what an ice man was all about. Was he really made of ice? What did he eat? Where did he live in the summer? Did he have a family? Those sorts of questions. Unfortunately, the Iceman didn't talk about himself at all. And I didn't dare ask the questions that whirled around in my head. I, I figured he didn't feel like talking about those things. Instead, he talked about me, who I am. It's hard to believe, but he knew everything there was to know about me who was in my family, my age, interests, my health, what school I was attending, my friends. He knew it all. Even things I'd long forgotten, he knew everything about. I don't get it, I blushed. I felt like I had been stripped naked in front of people. How do you know so much about me, I asked. Are you a mind reader? No, the Iceman said, I can't read minds. I just know these things like I'm looking deep into a clear block of ice. When I gaze at you like this, I can see everything about you. Can you see my future, I asked. No, not the future, he replied blankly, slowly shaking his head. I'm not interested in the future. I have no concept of the future. Ice contains no future, just the past, sealed away. As if they're alive, everything in the world is sealed up inside, clear and distinct. 
Ice can preserve all kinds of things that way, cleanly, clearly. That's the essence of ice, the role it plays. I'm glad, I replied and smiled. I was relieved. There was no way I wanted to hear about my future. We got together a few times after we returned to Tokyo, eventually dating every weekend. We didn't go on typical dates to see movies or spend time in coffee shops. We didn't even go out to eat. The Iceman hardly ever ate. Instead, we'd spend time on a park bench side by side talking. We discussed all kinds of subjects, yet not once did the Iceman talk about himself. Why is this, I asked one day. Why don't you ever talk about yourself? I want to know more about you, where you were born, what kind of parents you had, how you came to be an Iceman. The Iceman gazed at me for a while, then slowly shook his head. I don't know the answer to those things, he responded quietly and decisively, exhaling his hard white breath. I have no past. I know the past of everything else and preserve it, but I have no past myself. I have no idea where I was born. I don't know what my parents looked like or whether I even had any. I don't know how old I am or even if I have an age. The Iceman was as isolated and alone as an iceberg floating in the darkness. I fell deeply in love with him. And he came to love me, the present me, apart from any past or future. And I came to love the Iceman for who he is now, apart from any past or future. It was a wonderful thing. We began to talk about getting married. I had just turned 20, and the Iceman was the first person I'd ever truly loved. What loving him really meant was, at the time, beyond me. But that would have been true even if it hadn't been the Iceman I was in love with then. My mother and older sister were totally opposed to our marriage. You're too young to get married, they argue. You don't know the man's background or even when he was born. How are we supposed to explain that to our relatives? And listen, they went on, he's an Iceman. So what happens if he melts? <laughs> You don't seem to understand this, but when you get married, you take on certain responsibilities. How can an Iceman possibly fulfill his duties as a husband? Their fears were groundless, however. The Iceman wasn't really made out of ice. He was just as cold as ice. So even if it got hot, he wasn't about to melt. He was cold, all right, but this wasn't the kind of cold that was going to rob someone else of his body heat. So we got married. No one celebrated our wedding. No one, not my friends or relatives or my family, was happy about us getting married. We didn't even have a wedding ceremony. The Iceman didn't have a family register, so even a civil ceremony was out. The two of us simply decided that we were married. We bought a small cake and ate it, just the two of us. <laughs> that was our ceremony. We rented a small apartment and the Iceman took a job at a refrigerated meat warehouse. <laughs> the cold never bothered him, of course, and he never got tired, no matter how hard he worked. He never even ate very much. 
So his boss really liked him and paid him more than any of his fellow employees. We lived a quiet life, just the two of us, not bothered by anyone else, not troubling anybody. When we made love, I always pictured a solitary, silent clump of ice off somewhere. Hard ice, as hard as it could possibly be. The largest chunk of ice in the entire world. It was somewhere far away, though the Iceman must know where that chunk of ice is. What he did was convey a memory of that ice. The first few times we made love, I was confused, but soon I grew used to it. I grew to love it when he took me in his arms. As always, he never said a word about himself, not even why he became an Iceman, and I never asked him. The two of us simply held each other in the darkness, sharing that enormous ice inside of which the world's past, millions of years' worth were preserved. Our married life was fine. We loved each other and everyone left us alone. People found it hard at first to get used to the Iceman, but after a while they started to talk with him. An Iceman's not so different from anybody else, they concluded. But deep down I knew they didn't accept him. And they didn't accept me for having married him. We're different people from them, they concluded, and the gulf separating them and us will never be filled. We tried but failed to have a baby, perhaps because of the genetic difference between humans and ice men that made having children difficult. Without a baby to keep me busy, I found I had a lot of spare time on my hands. I'd straighten up the house in the morning, but after that had nothing to keep me busy. I didn't have any friends to talk to or go out with, and I didn't know anybody in the neighborhood. My mother and sister were still angry with me over marrying a nice man and refused to get in touch. I was the family black sheep they were embarrassed about. There was no one to talk to, even over the phone. While the Iceman was working in the warehouse, I stayed alone at home, reading or listening to music. I was a bit of a homebody anyway and didn't mind being by myself all that much. Still, I was young and couldn't put up with such a monotonous routine for long. Boredom didn't bother me as much as the sheer repetitiveness of each day. I started to see myself as nothing more than a repetitive shadow within that daily routine. So one day I suggested to my husband that we take a trip somewhere to break up the routine. A trip, the Iceman asked, his eyes narrowing. Why would you want to go on a trip? You're not happy the way we are, just the two of us? No, that's not it, I replied. I'm perfectly happy. We get along fine. It's just that I'm bored. I'd like to go someplace far away, see things I've never seen before, experience something new. Do you know what I mean? And besides, we never went on a honeymoon. We have enough saved up, plus you have plenty of vacation time. It would be nice to take a leisurely vacation for once. The Iceman let out a deep, nearly freezing sigh, which crystallized audibly in the air, then brought his long, frost-covered fingers together on his lap. Well, he said, if you really want to go on a trip that much, I don't see why not. I don't think traveling is all that great, but I'll do whatever it takes to make you happy. Go wherever you want. 
I've worked hard at the warehouse and should be able to take some time off. It shouldn't be a problem. Where would you like to go? How about the South Pole, I said. <laughs> I picked the South Pole because I was sure the Iceman would be interested in going there. And truth be told, I'd always wanted to go see it, to see the aurora and the penguins. I had this wonderful mental picture of myself in a hooded parka underneath the aurora, playing with the penguins. <laughs> the Iceman looked deep into my eyes, unblinking. His look was like a sharply pointed icicle piercing deep into my brain. He was silent for a while, thinking. Then with a twinkle in his voice, he said, All right, if you'd really like to go to the South Pole, then let's do it. You sure that's where you want to go? I nodded. I can take a long vacation in a couple of weeks, he said. You should be able to get everything ready for the trip in the meantime. That's all right with you? I couldn't respond. His icicle stare had frozen my brain, and I couldn't think. As the days passed, though, I started to regret bringing up the idea to my husband of a trip to the South Pole. I'm not sure why. It's like ever since I mentioned the name South Pole, he changed. His eyes grew more piercing and icicle-like than ever. His breath whiter, his fingers covered with an increasing amount of frost. He was quieter than before and more stubborn, and he was no longer eating, which had me worried. Five days before we were set to depart, I decided I had to say something. Let's not go to the South Pole after all, I said to him. It's, it's too cold and might not be good for us. It'd be better to go some ordinary place, Europe or, or Spain or somewhere. We could drink some wine, eat some paella, watch a bullfight or two. But my husband ignored me. He had this faraway look for a while, then turned to me and looked deep into my eyes. His stare went so deep, I felt like my body was about to vanish right then and there. No. My husband, the Iceman, said flatly, Spain doesn't interest me. I'm sorry, but it's just too hot and dusty, and the food's too spicy. And I already bought our tickets to the South Pole and a fur coat and fur-lined boots for you. We can't let those things go to waste. We can't just back out now. To tell you the truth, I was frightened. If we went to the South Pole, I felt sure something terrible was going to happen to us. I had the same awful dream night after night. I'm walking somewhere when I fall into a deep hole. Nobody finds me and I freeze solid. I'm frozen inside the ice, gazing up at the sky, unconscious but can't even move a finger. It's such a weird feeling. With each passing moment, I'm becoming part of the past. There is no future for me, just the past steadily accumulating. Everybody is watching this happening to me. They're watching the past, watching as I slip further and further away. Then I wake up and find the Iceman sleeping beside me. He makes no sound as he sleeps, like something frozen and dead. I love him, though. I start to cry, my tears wetting his cheek. He awakens and holds me close. I had an awful dream, I tell him. In the darkness, he slowly shakes his head. It was only a dream, he says. Dreams come from the past, not from the future. Dreams shouldn't control you. You should control them. You're right, I say, but I'm not at all certain. 
So we ended up taking a plane to the South Pole. I couldn't find a reason to call off our trip. The pilots and stewardesses in our plane barely said a word the whole way. I was hoping to enjoy the scenery as we flew, but the clouds were so thick I couldn't see a thing. Before long, the windows were covered with a thick film of ice. All this time, my husband just sat quietly, read a book. I felt none of the usual excitement and happiness you feel as you set out on a trip, merely the feeling that we were fulfilling what we'd set out to do. As we walked down the ramp and first set foot at the South Pole, I could feel my husband's whole body tremble. It all happened in the blink of an eye in half an instant, and his expression didn't change a jot, so no one else noticed. But I didn't miss it. Something inside him sent a quiet yet intense jolt through him. I stared at his face. He stood there, looked up at the sky, then at his hands, then let out a deep breath. He looked over at me and smiled. So this is where you wanted to come, he asked. That's right. I replied. I knew the South Pole was going to be a lonely place, but it turned out to be lonelier than anything I could have imagined. Hardly anyone lived there. There was just one small featureless town with one equally featureless hotel. The South Pole isn't much of a tourist destination. There weren't even any penguins, not to mention any aurora. Occasionally, I'd stop passers-by and ask where the penguins were, but they'd merely shake their head. They couldn't understand my words, so I'd end up sketching a penguin on a piece of paper to show them. But all I got was the same response, a silent shake of the head. I felt so alone. Step outside the town and all you saw was ice, no trees, no flowers, rivers, or ponds. Ice and nothing but a frozen wasteland as far as the eye could see. My husband, on the other hand, with his white breath, frosty fingers, and faraway look in his icicle eyes, strode tirelessly here and there. It wasn't long before he learned the language and spoke with the locals in hard, icy tones. They talked for hours, intense looks on their faces, but I didn't have a clue what they could be talking about. My husband was entranced by the whole place. Something about it appealed to him. It upset me at first, and I felt like I was left behind, betrayed and abandoned. Finally, though, in the midst of this silent, icy world, all strength drained out of me, ebbing away bit by bit. Even in the end, the strength to feel upset by my situation. My emotional compass had vanished. I lost all sense of direction, of time, of the sense of who I was. I don't know when it began or when it ended, but before I knew it, I was locked away, alone and numb, in the endless winter of that world of ice. Even after I'd lost almost all sensation, I still knew this. The husband here at the South Pole is not the husband I used to know. I couldn't say how he'd changed exactly, for he still was always thoughtful, always had kind words for me. And I knew he sincerely meant the things he said, but I also knew that the Iceman before me now was not the Iceman I'd first met at the ski resort. But who was I going to complain to? All the South Pole people liked him a lot, and they couldn't understand a word I said. With white breath and frosty faces, they talked, joked around, and sang songs in that distinctively spirited language of theirs. 
I stayed shut up in my hotel room, gazing out at the gray skies that wouldn't clear for months, struggling to learn the complicated grammar of the South Pole language, something I knew I'd never master. There weren't any more airplanes at the airport. After the plane that carried us here departed, no more landed. By this time, the runway was buried beneath a hard sheet of ice, just like my heart. Winter's come, my husband said. A long, long winter. No planes will come, no ships either. Everything's frozen solid, he said. All we can do is wait for spring. It was three months after we'd come to the South Pole that I realized I was pregnant. And I knew one thing, that the baby I was going to give birth to would be a tiny ice man. My womb had frozen over, a thin sheet of ice mixed in with my amniotic fluid. I could feel that chill deep inside my belly. And I knew this too. My child would have the same icicle eyes as his father, the same frost-covered fingers. And I knew one more thing. Our new little family would never step outside the South Pole again. The outrageous weight of the eternal past had grabbed us and wasn't about to let go. We'd never be able to shake free. My heart is just about gone now. The warmth I used to have has retreated somewhere far away. Sometimes I even forget that warmth ever existed. I'm still able to cry, though. I'm completely alone in the coldest, loneliest place in the world. When I cry, my husband kisses my cheeks, turning my tears to ice. He peels off those frozen tears and puts them on his tongue. You know I love you, he says, and I know it's true. The Iceman does love me. But the wind blows his frozen words further and further into the past. And I cry some more icy tears welling up endlessly in our frozen little home in the far-off South Pole. That was Jane Curtin performing Iceman by Haruki Murakami. She says this is one of her favorite stories to have read, and listening to it, at the end you really feel the narrator's emotion and that she's resigned to the life she's chosen. This story is so eerie and unexpected. Nothing in it conforms to the shape we expect love stories to take. Instead, we must accept the images and constraints of this icy world, and like the narrator, we can feel ourselves being pulled deeper and deeper into it. If love is a many-splendored thing, as the old song goes, then these three stories show us that there are an equal number of ways to prove it. The big gesture, the brief reconnection, acceptance of the unknown and unknowable aspects of love. And on our show, there's only one way to take all this in, which is by listening. And if you too want to be part of our show, then please check out the Selected Shorts Writing Contest. Every year, one of your favorite writers chooses a lucky winner, and the prizes are, I am in no way biased, amazing. $1,000, publication on electric literature, an actor performing your story at the closing night of Selected Shorts, and a free writing class with Gotham Writers Workshop. This year's judge is Anthony Doerr, author of Cloud Cuckoo Land, All the Light We Cannot See, and more. 
Visit SelectedShorts.org to learn more and submit by March 10th, 2023 for your chance to win. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achilles and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for New Initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producers, circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. 